spaceship Rising has landed on planet Tuesday, and we've got a great show for you today. So glad to have you tuning in, and so glad to have Jessica Burbank back with us. Hello, Jessica. How does he come up with this stuff? <laughs> it's mean... not written for me on the TV. <laughs> that was really just not. top of it's mind. You can dome, see that. Yeah. Um, all right, well, why don't you tell us what we're talking about today? Well, Robbie, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden's alleged foreign business dealings has reached the level of impeachment inquiry. We now know Hunter Biden's former business partner and best friend is set to testify that President Biden spoke in at least two dozen phone calls with foreign business associates of Hunter Biden while serving as vice president. This, according to new reporting in the New York Post, Devin Archer, who currently faces charges related to $60 million in bond fraud, will testify to the House Oversight Committee about witnessing Hunter Biden dial his father in over speakerphone with meetings with foreign business partners and prospective investors. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responded to reporters' questions on the matter yesterday. Uh, Chairman James Comer today says that the Oversight Committee, excuse me, has evidence that the president in the past communicated directly with foreign business associates of his son Hunter Biden many times. Curious if the White House and the president still stand behind his comment that he's never been involved and has never even uh, spoken to his son about his business. So I've been, I've been asked this question a million times. The answer is not going to change. The answer remains the same. The president ha was never in business with his son. I just don't have anything else to add. Well, and as Megyn Kelly is pointing out, this denial that Joe Biden never was in business with Hunter is actually different than the president's previous denials that he never, ever spoke business with his son. So, you know, this is quite a news scoop um, if substantiated that, in fact, Joe Biden was dialed into a call about Hunter Biden's dealings. Um, they might want to, I guess, save the—I um, don't know if they're going to make the excuse that, like, Joe Biden doesn't really know what's going on or something. <laughs> Thought he was talking to— An insanity to, plea from the president. Uh, sort of, yeah, a, a, a no longer with it plea. Um, mm. Because this does, you know, make us very concerned. This has always been the question. Hunter Biden was clearly trying to, I think, uh, convey to his business associates, his foreign business and government interests that he that he was on their payroll, that he could command his father's attention and support, and that he was valuable because of that. And it was clear. It's pretty clear Hunter Biden was trying to do that. Less clear whether Joe Biden um, did anything to play into that idea or assumption, whether he was aware of it, et cetera. So that, you know, if he's being, if he's joining phone calls, uh, that, you know, that is different than, than what Karine Jean-Pierre uh, said and, and other people on behalf of Biden has said a million times, that he actually had nothing to do with, the, they didn't even discuss business, Hunter Biden's business. That would never even came up. That's what he said. Uh, I, I don't know how they can stick to that if this is true. It's going to be a, a tough sell, right? Because this is uh, Devin Archer testifying. This is someone who has committed fraud or is facing, you know, some some other fraud charges related to sixty million dollars. That's a lot of money. We did have Mikla Zlochevsky say in the first impeachment inquiry that Biden, as vice president, was never on these phone calls. Mm -hmm. And so Devin Archer is alleging that that was one of two of the foreign associates that was on the, the phone call. And that when Hunter Biden phoned, he called them by name, Nikolai and Vladim, and said, you know, we're going to talk to your, your dad at the Four Seasons, Ho Seasons Hotel in Saudi Arabia. 
That's a story that doesn't even add up with what Zolchevsky has said went mm -hmm. down. So that's going to be a really tough sell because now, now it's going to be hearsay and, and one person's word against the other, right? And you have one person, Zolchevsky, who was on the call saying that it wasn't with uh, Biden as VP. So that's tough. But what went down does sound like corruption, even if this phone call didn't happen, because two months after Biden was, was no longer vice president, you had Hunter Biden's compensation go from $83,000 a month from Burisma yes. to half of that. So there's some kind of corruption going yes. on. Is the inquiry getting to the territory of they really seem to want to get the Biden family on something? Yeah, and, and they're grabbing at you know witness testimony, which is good. It's good to have witnesses testify, but it doesn't hold up to what happened in prior in, impeachment inquiries, where someone who allegedly was on the call said that they never spoke to Joe Biden. So it's, I think, going to be a tough sell. And what I would like to see Congress do and McCarthy do is write some legislation. You're the legislature. You're supposed to check the power of the executive branch impose some checks and balances so corruption like this doesn't happen in the future. Mm. Well, that was not all. Meanwhile, new, uh, new Business Insider reporting revealed the identities of the people who Hunter Biden sold, you know, his, his fancy paintings, mm -hmm. uh, who he sold those to. So Hunter sold at least $875,000 worth of his artwork to a Democratic donor who Joe Biden subsequently named to a prestigious government commission. So this story came out yesterday. Uh, it, it's very interesting. Um, this this person, let me see if I can, I can yeah, uh, Elizabeth Hirsch Naftali, a Los Angeles real estate investor and philanthropist who's active in California Democratic circles and was appointed by Joe Biden to the Commission for the Preservation of America's Heritage Abroad. That was eight months after purchasing almost a million dollars worth of Hunter Biden's art. I don't know, yeah. That's that looks pretty straightforward. Yeah, a lot of this sounds like Corruption that's not new, not unique to the Biden administration, well, no, fine, right? No, but you know, six months after uh, you know President Trump is out of office, you have two, a two billion dollar investment from the Saudis into Jared Kushner's dealings. Yeah, fine. So, I think it's common, right? I don't think it's unique to the Biden family. What are we going to do about it? Like, what is McCarthy's plan? Right? They want to investigate. They want to have the House Oversight Committee hold this hearing, have this testimony become public from Devin Archer. But what's going to happen after this? Like, what impeachment. protections? Impeachment. Impeachment. But then how <laughs> do we prevent every other president from having dealings with multinational corporations and abusing their power to further the business dealings of their families? We're just going to impeach every single one of them. I don't know. <laughs> every president. I, I mean, we like might Clark. be heading to a world where every president <laughs> yeah. gets impeached, uh, fairly or unfairly, huh. due to the just deeply politicized nature of our um, current system. No, I, I hear what you're saying, yeah. what you're saying. There's a lot of complaining from Republicans. There's a lot of, um, you know, thunderous denunciation and, um, and not a lot of action and obviously not enough um, admitting that however corrupt you think or his showing to be the Biden administration, the Biden family, um, there was a lot um, also corrupt about Trump and the right. Saudis and Kushner, et cetera. Actually, I think some of Trump's hardest core right-wing supporters mm -hmm. never even actually liked Jared Kushner uh, very much and thought right. that his, his influence on Trump was pernicious and um, kind of like globalist in, in focus, mm -hmm. if yeah. you know what I mean. He, he was never, in, in fact, that was an early frustration with Trump, that he, that he 
instead of following through on his kind of American first foreign policy commitments, he, you know, he put Jared Kushner in charge of like everything. And mm -hmm. that was not what uh, his base wanted. So anyway, you're right that there's certainly not legislation being enacted to stop this kind of thing. Right. I think it's a tricky situation where you have Democrats and Republicans constantly in this headspace. And I think it's a tribal human instinct, right? That when our guys are the bad guys doing the bad thing, right? Corruption, multinational corporations are dealing with people that are in the highest office in the United States. And these, this is the leader of your party. This is your president that you've elected. Hold, hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so easy for Democrats to say, oh my God, Republicans, like Donald Trump, so corrupt. Jared Kushner got all of this money. But when it's Biden, it's like, there can't be any merit. It's definitely a goose chase before we even hear about what evidence there is. And so I think we've got to get out of that headspace and just hold our elected officials accountable. It shouldn't be hard, but I think it's the tribal yeah. instinct that gets in people's way. I wish I could find someone to buy, to purchase my artwork, a Robbie Suave original for $875,000. That do would you, be very good for me. you Robbie? What? And in our next segment, Don't you Robbie see me always doodling here? I, it's uh, really, uh, Robbie really Robbie is moving. always doodling. It's true. <laughs> really nice stick figures yes. over here. More rising <laughs> next. Stay tuned. Elon Musk has revealed his rationale for why Twitter has become X. Writing on the platform yesterday, he said Twitter was acquired by X Corp both to ensure freedom of speech and as an accelerant for X, the everything app. This is not simply a company renaming itself, but doing the same thing. The Twitter name made sense when it was just 140 characters, message, character messages going back and forth, like birds tweeting, but now you can post almost anything, including several hours of video. Musk goes on to say, quote, in the months to come, we will add comprehensive communications and the ability to conduct your entire financial world. The Twitter name does not make sense in that context, so we must bid adieu to the bird. Mm. And this was in response uh, to a tweet. Um, I'm still calling them tweets. I don't know. You, yeah, you suggested the need. I don't know what word. That's for threads. Exits. 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 Zits. That's Zeets? what someone Is that what they're suggested. saying? Yeah. I, I, I think it's going to stay tweets. Sorry. I mean, look, I still call Facebook Facebook mostly rather than Meta. So it's, it's, not, it's not any dig at Elon, but some kind of brands are hard to change for a reason. Anyway, the this, this uh, post by someone was, uh, was you know, making a list of all the brands that have kind of changed their names. So I, I take Elon's point. I, I get his vision. His vision is he, he's long dreamed of creating X, this app, for everything, for all, you know, instead of having all these different apps. But here's the problem, because nobody, like, goes and deletes old apps. They just, like, yeah. hang on forever. You don't rarely do you delete your account for something else. Like, yes. I, again, I barely, barely use Facebook, but mm -hmm. it's still on my phone. I still browse it every now and then, um, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, like, I, I really almost never use TikTok, but I have a TikTok account. I think I have the app on my phone, mm -hmm. you know, that, that sort of thing. But his, his vision is this one site, this one app for everything, and that's why he acquired uh, Twitter, and it doesn't make sense to call it Twitter anymore. And that, you know, that's his philosophy. Everybody obviously was, I think even a lot of his supporters were mocking it yesterday because mm -hmm. Twitter was, uh, was a you know, popular and successful brand on its own that has decreased in value somewhat since his acquisition. But it seems like this has been his plan for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. We were all like, why are you naming it X? That's a weird kind of a dumb name. But he He's likes like, X. He likes the name he X. He loves X. We didn't like it, but 
I don't know if it's reassuring for all of us to be upset about a dumb name. And he's like, oh, don't worry. We're just making a super corporation. We're actually going to do everything and take over and everything. It's very meta of them, and not in the metaphysical sense, in that they are copying off of Zuck's playbook and also Bezos' playbook, mm -hmm. right? Except Bezos was really quiet about it. He's like, I'm slowly going to merge with and buy up all of these other companies to create this big thing, Amazon, which somehow does everything, right? Elon wants this to be photos, videos, television, blogs, quick takes, news, a bank, a literal bank where you conduct your business, which was his original venture back in the day. His problem there was you could access anyone's bank account if you just had their number. Big security flaw. Then he joined PayPal and was kicked off as CEO because they thought he would bankrupt the company. I don't trust Elon to run everything. This feels like a narcissist like vanity project. Like I want to be like Jeff Bezos. I want to be like Zuckerberg. I want to do everything. I want to be that guy. It feels like there's no vision here. It's just I want to own the the X thing, the big company that does everything. Well, I don't agree with that. I mean, he I wants to create vision. that company. He's I mean, I, I see the vision. Um, he's obviously built successful companies before he's the world's richest person or second richest person for good reason you know he's successfully built um, Tesla SpaceX etc uh, he, he clearly I think he can't, he can't just he's a very eccentric person and I, I'm not sure I agree with all the t decisions all the changes he's made to Twitter um, but I, I think it I think it's wrong to just like write him off as some crazy person doesn't know what he's doing because he has successfully done this before um, he, so I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. I, I think he's he's, uh, you know, to make it the everything app. What what I'm seeing the issue is going to be. He's making he wants it to be the everything app, but he has also made it as we discussed yesterday a place that's a lot more um, for conservative speech. Obviously, you know, Tucker Carlson has launched a show on Twitter. We're seeing a lot more um, uh, content from conservatives. Um, again, I, I think it's great that they are no longer being suppressed as they were under the previous. Twitter regime. I'm glad we learned a lot more about the decisions that led the previous regime to do this very, very bad <laughs> censorship. Um, and it's fine if Elon wants to buy this company and turn it into a conservative media organization. But a conservative media organization and an everything app are two different things. Because obviously, if it's a, if it's a conservative media company, then there are like a lot of people who are not conservatives who are not going to want to you know use it. Like a lot of people wouldn't want to use Fox News as their you know banking hub. Um, because they don't like Fox News. There are a lot of people who do like Fox News, and they would, but it's not going to be everything for all people if it's, if it's on one side um, or the other. Another issue is um, this uh, a colleague of mine, Emma Camp, who's been on the show, pointed this out to me. Can we put this tweet up on screen? Um, how much this new X logo, look at this, looks like everything else. Yeah, we're just going black and white <laughs> Like, now. imagine trying to pick on your phone, which at, you'll click the wrong one so much. Yeah. So that was another advantage of the old, uh, of the old, of the bird that's been put out to pasture. Put yeah. out to that, that big nest in the sky. Yes. I think, you know, Elon is, is a fraud. I don't say that because he's a weird guy. I say that because think he is a fraud. If you look at every acquisition or every rise to CEO he's had, it's come through via a weird legal negotiation where he didn't work his way up and get appointed by a board on his merits. Mm -hmm. When he decided to buy Tesla, because originally he sold the financial company he had for online banking with a security flaw so bad you could access anyone's account just 
just with their account number. Still, this was a space where people really wanted to dominate and be the front runner like PayPal did. So these businesses got acquired. He got acquired for $180 million. That's a good chunk of change. He decided to buy Tesla. He was not the founder or the original CEO. He bought it uh, from Mark Tarpanen and uh, Martin Everhart. Right? Those were the original founders mm -hmm. of Tesla. And then he decided in the legal documents to appoint him as CEO. And then he did a bunch of like news appearances. And he lied on an application for government subsidies, saying he already had the technology developed for electric cars, then got the $451 million from the government. That is what he created Tesla with, based on a lie that he had technology that he didn't have already. And now Tesla's profitable. Why? selling carbon credits, not because they're, they've created a profitable business model selling the Tesla cars. And so I think Elon has lied his way to the top, and he didn't buy Twitter with cash on hand. He bought Twitter with a loan leveraged against the Tesla stock, which he skyrocketed with his public presence on Twitter, saying, hey, everybody, we're going private when we hit 420. You can't do that. It's illegal to announce you're going private on Twitter without telling the shareholders. And so he's risen to his position of power and prominence and created this idea that he's this brilliant businessman. Kind saying of it's all vibes. A, a bunch of fraud, a bunch of it's all vibes, not good vibes, yeah. but it is vibes. Well, I'm Robin. now no big fan of uh, su uh, subsidies in general, industry subsidies, any so. kind of subsidy. So I would not uh, have greenlit those. Uh, not a big fan, but uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I have a hard time believing that there's just, that he just like hustled or lucked or scammed his way into this position, but maybe that's me being naive. By being naive. a very good hustler and scammer, Robbie. <laughs> He's very good at it. I'll give him that. Well, we'll keep following uh, the development of X, including what we're supposed to call tweets now. I think there's still going to be just tweets here on Zeets. Rising for a while. Zeets. More Rising right after this. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is facing steep opposition from the Democratic establishment, and now political action groups are joining the push to keep him from getting on the ballot. Friend of the show and podcaster Sabrina Salvati highlighted the extent of this effort, specifically groups wrangling voters via text to thwart RFK Jr.'s run. In a recent tweet, Sabi denounced this, saying, quote, they're already kicking people or texting people to kick RFK Jr. off the ballot. I don't support his campaign, but this is wild. Here to dig deeper into the anti-RFK Jr. camp is Sabrina. Welcome, Sabrina. Thank you so much for having me on. So it sounds like this text that came through, I'm begging, can you sign the petition to ban Robert F. Kennedy Jr. from the ballot, came from Progressive Turnout Pack. Do you think it's going to increase voter turnout by kicking candidates off of the Democratic primary ballot, especially for progressives? What do you make of this? Well, unfortunately, a lot of Americans aren't even paying attention to the political landscape right now. So some of them, I think a lot of them don't even know that this is happening, to be honest. But this particular organization, Progressive Turnout Pack, they are aligned with the Democratic Party. I think it's important for people to know that one of the individuals that has donated heavily to this particular organization is Dustin Moskowitz. Now, Dustin is a co-founder of Facebook. So here you have a social media platforms donating to political organizations. Now, why should that be concerning for people? If we go back to the interview that Mark Zuckerberg had with Joe Rogan, he explained that 
uh, it was political. Uh, the Democratic Party reached out to them and said that they did not want them uh, to feature the Hunter Biden laptop story. They wanted them to suppress that organization. So here you have social media platforms working hand in hand uh, with the, the Democratic Party. And, and this is very much a problem. You can see this. I think it's going to escalate in 2024 as to whether or not what they decide, who they're going to platform and who they're going to uh, suppress. But that text message did come through. A uh, number of people have received that text message as well. And I think everybody should be concerned whether you support RFK Jr.'s campaign or not. Who were they to tell you to kick someone off of the ballot? So this is very concerning. Certainly. And it's deeply undemocratic. I mean, this is the nomination to figure out who's going to be the Democratic Party's candidate. What is the what is the DNC? What is the Biden camp afraid of? Are, are they actually afraid of this challenge from RFK Jr.? Is this evidence of that? I believe so. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the Democrat politicians that have been heavily preaching about protecting our democracy, which I would argue we don't have a real democracy, uh, but those individuals actually just want you to vote for the candidate that the Democratic Party has selected. And the candidate that they've selected is Joe Biden. They believe that just because he's already sitting in the Oval Office, that we should just hand over re-election to him and that he should not have any type of challenge, whether it's from the Democratic Party or third party or independent. And that's really unfortunate, but this is how this game works. And I think hopefully more people will wake up to this and push back against the Democratic Party for being, you know, trying to do this and being so vocal about it early on. It shows you that they're very much afraid that Joe Biden could lose uh, re-election. But I think people need to understand we have to start looking at solutions in reference to this type of situation. There are two things that you can do. Number one, you can stop doing their bidding. Stop voting for the candidate that they select and tell you you should vote for just because that person fits the status quo and is backed by Wall Street in the military industrial complex. And two, for those of you that live in states that are ballot initiative states, you should run BI measures to publicly finance elections. Now, this is something that needs to start at the local level, because in 2010, the Supreme Court ruled that corporations are people that are entitled to buy elections. So we're going to have to start working on this locally. But at the end of the day, the Democratic Party selects the candidate that they want. And anyone who goes outside of that status quo, they'll do whatever they can to make sure that they don't win. Look at what happened during the Democratic primary debates in 2020. Throughout the debates, they changed the rules so that some candidates could be removed, like Tulsi Gabbard, and so that the candidates that they want could join, like Mike Bloomberg. Oh, we don't have a real democracy. If we had a real democracy, third-party candidates wouldn't have to fight so hard to get on the ballot. They mm. wouldn't be trying to kick people off of the ballot. You know, it's really a disgrace. Here it is 2023, and this is the way our political system operates. For sure. Yeah, well, speaking of third-party candidates, according to recent polling from Monmouth University, 30% of registered voters said they would be open to choosing a third-party candidate in the 2024 election. When asked whether he's scared for the Biden-Harris ticket, Congressman Jim Clyburn couldn't even hide his sentiments on third parties. Here he is on MSNBC. Let's watch. Bill Clinton became president of the United States with only 42%. Ross Perot was a third-party candidate. He got a big number, and it helped Bill Clinton. I don't think Bill Clinton would have got elected uh, were it not for a third party. So I'm not getting all exercise uh, all, uh, over uh, whether or not there is a third party candidate. I don't think there should be. I'm against 
uh, what this no labels uh, people are doing. I think uh, some of them are just playing games. They're not being transparent to American people. We don't know where their money is coming from, and they won't tell us where the money is coming from. Meanwhile, journalist for The Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal, took to Twitter saying, quote, the Dems are going to try to bribe Cornell to drop out, offering some shiny position as dean or department head with mountains of donor money promised to the university. If that fails, they will resort to the time-tested tactic of voter suppression and calling him a Russian asset. What do you make of Max Blumenthal's take there. I think that's pretty in line with how we see the Democratic Establishment Act. You know, I worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and the way they treated him is not so different from how they're treating RFK Jr. and how they just tend to treat any candidate that comes in from outside of the establishment. Do you see this playbook, you know, continuing to work for the Democratic Establishment? I think as long as the American people buy in it, they'll continue to do it. You know, I think Max is 100% correct there. They will try to find ways to get uh, Cornell West to drop out. But luckily, Cornell West did come from the Bernie campaign, so he saw what was done to Bernie Sanders. I think he's very well aware of what they're going to try to do to him. But I think what's really interesting, if you look at someone like Dennis Kucinich, who is now RFK Jr.'s campaign manager, the Democratic Party did this to him, and he was a sitting politician. Uh, Dennis Kucinich was considered to be progressive at that point in time. They did not like his views, particularly a view that he had in reference to Israel and Palestine. And so what did they try to do when he continued to win? The Democratic Party decided to redistrict his district so that he didn't have one. Uh, the, the cruddy things that they will do to get their way and to get the people and the voices that they want in is not democratic. And no, we do not have a real democracy in this country, but they will try to do this to Cornell West and just wait for it. It's only 2023. Come 2024, they are going to ramp up the smears against RFK Jr. and Cornell West. Now, Cornell West is a little bit harder for them to push back on because he is beloved by so many people. But they do consider him to be a real threat, considering the fact that he is someone who is very well known. He did come from the Bernie campaign, and a lot of people do love uh, Dr. West. So it's really hard for them to ignore him as they have other third party candidates. But I think now is the time uh, for people to really make their voices heard and to stop just voting for the candidates that they selected for you and telling you that you should vote for I think that's what um, the mainstream and the establishment don't understand about um, third-party voters, um, including myself, uh, that, that those votes aren't necessarily in play for major party tickets that are not speaking to the issues that third-party voters care about. So the, the just, like, assumption that, well, if there wasn't this third-party challenger, if there wasn't Cornell West or whoever the Green Party nominee ends up being or whoever the Libertarian Party nominee ends up being, those voters would just naturally go to either the Republican or the Democrat when many of those voters would just not vote or would write in the name of someone they liked. Or, you know, they, they might... Some would go one way, some would go another. But this just presumption that those votes belong to an establishment party is actually so contrary to the way discerning third-party voters actually think. And I don't think the establishment understands that. No, I don't think they do. For those who voted for people like Jill Stein uh, or Ralph Nader, 
those people would have just stayed home. And I think that's what they really have to understand. This idea that you would have voted for Hillary Clinton uh, if Jill Stein was not on the ticket, that doesn't make any sense. If you wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton, you would have voted for Hillary Clinton, regardless if there was a Jill Stein uh, on the ballot. But they have to invoke this fear in the American people because they really want people to stay within the duopoly. They don't want you to vote for someone who's running third party or independent. Here we are, you know, in the world, how many other countries have multiple parties where it's just normal for you not to stay within a two-party mm. system? But here in the United States, they want to keep the status quo. And all of these politicians, at the end of the day, they do belong to corporations. They belong to the military-industrial complex. They're just puppets, so to speak. So there's a puppet that is selected by the Democratic Party, and that's the person they want you to support. How can they tell people that you should just reelect Joe Biden right now when Joe Biden is having difficulty speaking? Joe Biden has is having difficulty standing. It is very clear that he is not fit to be president of the United States, but they want you to go with it anyway. Uh, that's how embarrassing our politics is in this country at this point in time. Sabrina Salvati, Savvy Savs, thank you for breaking this down with us. We've got more rising after this. Investigative journalist Lee Fong wrote yesterday, Epstein sent many rambling emails suggesting projects with Bill Gates. Asked to prep presentations for New Gates-backed foundation, 100 million minimum investment expanding on exchanging prior Gates-related interests like vaccines and maternal care. In one of those emails from February 25th, 2011, Epstein reportedly wrote, Gates guy here today, no reporters, I took care of that. Stay calm and focused, we need to speak. I am staying until very late tonight, seeing Gates read donor on Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday set aside for two, three hours to discuss exactly this. This comes as more information on Epstein's dealings are coming to light amid J.P. Morgan's fresh accusations over ties to the accused sex offender, Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, so these are, you know, filings from this uh, J.P. Morgan Virgin Islands yeah. lawsuit. Um, so just more and more emails uh, from J.P. Morgan officials, mm -hmm. Epstein uh, talking about it, just the the lucre, the all the influential, important people with lots of money that Epstein was connecting to island, to government officials at the island, to the, to the bank mm -hmm. as well. Um, his uh, yeah, and his ongoing kind of relationship with Gates, which is you know th these messages to Gates people, are 2011. So that's after he's already, again he's already a known sex offender. He's mm -hmm. been convicted. He he got his house arrest or whatever kind of deal he got right. for sexual misconduct with underage girls. So you can't say oh, I didn't know. It was known. It was known by then. Um, there's some joking about Miley Cyrus. Right. who at the time of this is 15. Mm -hmm. She's a Disney star at the time. Um, so that's, that's a, again, a clear inclination yes. of an awareness of exactly the kind of thing Epstein goes for. It's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Very it's, disgusting. it's a bit of a lens into what the world is like for bankers in America at the very high level. The emails that Lee Fong posted to Twitter you have one from a Mary Erdoz at jpmorgan.com, official email to an unknown person saying, uh, obviously they're at a party. This is, you know, really uh, late at night. The first email is about 8.30. This has turned into a cheesy broker fest. Totally not cool. The only cool people here are at Glenn's table, same as bat mitzvah. So maybe they've known each other for some time. The response is at 1.20 a.m. Epstein there with Miley Cyrus? 
And so this is like official JP Morgan emails where this exchange is happening. Was Epstein actually there with Miley Cyrus? We don't know. But the fact that they made the joke shows that these bankers on their JP Morgan emails are comfortable joking about the billionaire it's, being yeah. out with young girls. They were comfortable joking about a lot of really sketchy stuff. You know, we've read yeah. these emails in the past talking about who's your favorite, like, Disney princess. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it suggests, a, again, a, a deep familiarity with the kind of um, uh, bad and illegal stuff that Jeffrey Epstein was interested in and had already been convicted for, had already been convicted for, would eventually be arrested for again. Yet right up until the very end, I've talked about this several times, but I think it's always worth bringing up, it, it, including given her her, you know, recent crusade, her the higher media profile she has sought for herself as part of the uh, the pushback from Democrats on Twitter files and an RFK mm -hmm. Jr. Stacey Plaskett, the delegate of the Virgin Islands, right. you know, has been front and center at these hearings, accusing you know Matt Taibbi of perjury, um, accusing RFK Jr. of anti-Semitism. Stacey Plaskett, delegate of the Virgin Islands trying to get Jeffrey Epstein at her fundraisers as recently as 2018, I believe, the year before he was uh, was arrested again and then died in uh, in um, allegedly because of suicide in prison. Mm -hmm. You know, this was someone with full knowledge and awareness of his wrongdoing uh, was was courting his influence, right. his access to funds and to important wealthy people. Right. Plaskett, who originally said that she wasn't really aware that that he was donating. She was completely unaware of his right. donations to to her campaign. Which, you know, then she had to say Which in deposition last month. <laughs> it's just a lie. Yeah. She was directly in. Yeah, you can see the emails from her team saying, oh, he's going to be there, right? Let's and make sure he gets a personal invite. Not just for the political dealings, but was an attorney at the tax firm that worked with Jeffrey Epstein. So even before she ran for public office, mm -hmm. she knew Jeffrey Epstein. But then there's obvious documents uh, where she's asking that he be invited to the events. She was clearly yeah. aware most likely directly had been speaking with Jeffrey Epstein. And Jeffrey Epstein, times. you know, had his own agenda for the Virgin Islands. He wanted the sex yeah. offender policies of the Virgin Islands changed. <laughs> Wonder why that could be. Um, yeah. He was paying for some government officials, I, I think, schooling for their kids. Uh, you know, this is, uh, and, and this is, Something mm -hmm. I, I've again mentioned when we talk about this lawsuit, but because the lawsuit is from Virgin Islands to J.P. Morgan, but it yeah. seems pretty clear that a lot of the government officials of the Virgin Islands were very much complicit in the exact kind of nefarious. You know, we'll find out if it's illegal. Who knows? But very um, icky behavior that yeah. they're going after J.P. Morgan for for their relationship to um, to uh, Jeffrey Epstein. That they are complicit as well. So what you know, whatever financial whatever they recoup from J.P. Morgan as a result of this lawsuit, if this is just, you know, going to build, like, a nicer, um, you know, governor's mansion or something or whatever it is in the Virgin Islands, mm -hmm. that'll be pretty ridiculous because they're all over this, too. So it, it is the victims of Jeffrey Epstein who need to be made whole again, you know, not, um, not, not powerful people who were well aware of this mm -hmm. pattern of abuse for 15 years. Or maybe, you know, do the job of passing some anti-corruption legislation not only was Epstein donating to Plaskett's campaign, uh, there was a, an email where uh, an aide wrote to Epstein to confirm that a $13,000 corporate donation planned for the Democratic Party, not the Plaskett campaign, would be made 
quote, for the benefit of Stacey Plaskett. So this exceeds the amount that you can donate in an election cycle to an individual candidate. And this shows the kind of shady dealing that goes on between very rich donors like Jeffrey Epstein and PACs or political campaigns, right? You're circumventing FEC regulations by saying, I'm giving this money to the Democratic Party because I can give an unlimited amount, but I'm letting you know that this needs to go to the benefit of Stacey Plaskett, which is not a decision the donor can make. That's a decision that the party needs to make of what to do with that money. And so that's uh, a pretty damning facet of, of this whole expose as well of what's going on in the Virgin Islands. And, you know, she's a delegate to Congress and she's risen to a pretty prominent position as well. Yeah, she's been um, she's been all over, as I said, the uh, the Twitter files hearing. Um, she grilled Taibbi and Schellenberger. She accused Taibbi of, you know, making up, of, of getting things wrong and it way overplayed her hand there. And then at this RFK Jr. hearing last week, you know, she was one of the people, um, uh, you know, saying things that I, I don't think that uh, I think are exaggerations and mischaracterizations of what RFK Jr. said. You know, she's positioning herself as very much part of the Democratic, you know, establishment, pushing back on on uh, on, on people who are questioning government abuse related to social media and speech and all sorts of other things. Um, but she has, uh, you know, she has some some things to be looked at for. Yeah, podcaster Joe Rogan actually suggested that Bill Clinton was blackmailed by Jeffrey Epstein, who hung up a painting of Clinton in his home. Let's watch this. Why do you think Epstein had that giant painting of Bill Clinton in a dress in his foyer? Dude. Do you know that picture? Yeah. That painting? Epstein's taste in art was not great. Like, if you look at the no, shit. that was great. That, that, that painting is like, I got you, bitch. That's what that is. All right. You got. Uh, I'm going to see if I can put the painting up on screen. Um, what do you think about the blackmailing of Bill Clinton? So I, I love the way uh, the response goes by his guest there on the podcast of Joe Rogan, because it wasn't like, yeah, Jeffrey Epstein and, and Bill Clinton were obviously very close for him to have this painting commissioned. It was, you know, his taste in art's pretty bad. I wouldn't want Bill Clinton in a dress on the wall. It's a hilarious response. Well, it's not. So it's not. So let's put it. So there it is. Yeah. So it's not actually, I don't think, so Bill Clinton, <laughs> forgive me if I'm wrong. He didn't, he didn't pose, pose for, for this. There's, no, there, somebody else posed for it and it was painted and then they just painted it to look like Bill Clinton's mm. face. So yes. so I, the idea that, the, you know, I, I don't think this is evidence of that he's being black. Like he was, it was public knowledge, this painting, well, it, I guess it be, later became public knowledge. But it, it's not, he wasn't trying to, um, uh, Bill Clinton was like, like trying to prevent this painting from getting out or something. Like he didn't pose for it. It was just like anyone could do this. Mm -hmm. uh, so as evidence of, of blackmail, I don't know that it really no. amounts to anything. No, personally. but hilarious. Hilarious nonetheless. Hilarious. It's giving, you know, it doesn't sound right because the client is Jeffrey Epstein, but paint me like one of your French girls. Yeah. But that has yeah. a whole different connotation given the Epstein situation. I think the documents that are coming out, thanks to them looking into this, this J.P. Morgan case, are fascinating because we also have documents coming out alleging that Jeffrey Epstein helped connect J.P. Morgan to high-profile clients like yeah. the Google co-founder, Sergey Brin. I think there's just going to be more and more stuff coming out because a lot of these documents are going to be you know, disclosed to the public thanks to this case. Yeah. Well, we'll continue to follow that, and we'll have more rising right after this.
Podcaster Joe Rogan has said multiple times that he has no interest in interviewing former President Donald Trump. But Trump's team is not giving up. According to multiple reports, the GOP frontrunner still yearning to be on Rogan's podcast and per The Daily Beast, which first reported the story, Roger Stone has apparently offered to go up against Rogan in a cage-style matchup to get Trump on the Joe Rogan experience. Meanwhile, huh. a report in the New York Times exposed how a bizarre pro Ron DeSantis video in which he has lasers coming out of his eyes while depicting Trump as too friendly with the LGBTQ community was actually produced internally by a DeSantis aide who then passed it off to a supporter to post to make it look like it was crafted independently. Moreover, if DeSantis was hoping to score some points for a stint as a Guantanamo Bay lawyer, he might not want to hold his breath. Showtime pulled a Vice documentary showcasing DeSantis's tenure at Gitmo, according to Semaphore, which first reported the story. The network shelved the DeSantis-centered episode for fear of potential backlash. Vice is said to be looking for a new home for the show. So mm. it sounds to me that uh, there was some stuff that was pretty damning for DeSantis in this documentary. And DeSantis did say, or his campaign rather, said that they need to be more of a lean, mean campaign machine. And I don't know if that means, you know, pulling some strings with folks at Paramount, maybe some high-level donors to DeSantis that really like his candidacy, know some guys at Paramount. I don't know how you can have an episode Hold like that. Well, maybe they after had after it's produced. Maybe they had issues with um, the journalistic credibility of what Vice is doing. I mean, Vice is hmm. obviously a very um, extremely progressive-leaning news organization. Um, I believe it's also a bankrupt news organization. But um, you know, I, I can't judge this. The quality of this documentary without seeing it sounds like maybe they feared backlash from conservatives or DeSantis people who are very active on social media, which speaks to the uh, the earlier story we just mentioned, that the, some of these very weird, weird is the only way to describe them, video, pro-DeSantis videos that have been tweeted from the DeSantis War Room Twitter account, yeah. um, it sounds like they were made internally by some staffer who then passed them off to someone else so that it looked like it was... Um, organic. Organic, yeah. yeah. They're real weird videos. They're very... They're very online. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. The, they're, they're very, like, incel, yeah. for lack of a better word. It's giving, uh, we watched a bunch of Gen Z TikTok hype videos. Yeah. Oh, they're like Gen Z. We fed them into an AI and made it come up with its own for the DeSantis mm -hmm. campaign. Yeah. These fan cam type videos are very common on TikTok, and they're kind of ironic. It's kind of a joke. But when DeSantis does it, it's just like cringe. It's very obvious that it was it's someone who's not a part of that community who was trying to copy what they do to be cool on the internet. It's very like guy with a skateboard, like, hey, fellow kids, what's up? Uh, I do like your take on the Vice situation, that Vice is like, we have this you know, pretty interesting documentary about DeSantis that they're not letting us put out. And you're like, you sound broke, like, we're not <laughs> well, listening. I, I, yeah, I, I've not been uh, over the moon with some of their uh, yeah. journalistic choices. I can understand now, that. Now, what do you make Bobby. about Joe Rogan? Yes. Uh, so he, this is a pretty consistent principle he's had. I remember him right. saying this before. He, like, he said it on his show, that Trump people are just 
desperate to get Trump on. He has no. He said he has no interest in helping Trump. I think Trump and Trump's people's probably understand that mm -hmm. an interview on a Joe Rogan show would probably be good for them. Yeah. Uh, because. Uh, Joe Rogan's, I mean, Joe Rogan's audience is massive, mm -hmm. so much more massive than anything you can find on cable news than any, there's no way to reach this many people at once. Um, Joe Rogan has an audience uh, that I think is very ideologically mixed, but skeptical of mainstream narratives, uh, very critical because of Joe Rogan of yeah. kind of the establishment Democratic Party. So that maybe some of them, you know, go in a left direction, some of them go in a right direction, some of them go in an independent direction, but it's people, it's, it's winnable, people for someone iconoclastic like Donald Trump. So, of mm. course, he wants to be on it. But Joe Rogan, you know, Joe Rogan said he was a Bernie supporter last time around, maybe last two times around, and has just steadfastly refused to do anything to um, to help Trump, which I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's his show. He can do whatever he wants, but um, it's not, it wouldn't necessarily be helping, you know, if you have Trump on and ask him really tough questions and hold his feet to the fire and eviscerate him the way you would, you know, someone someone peddling vaccines or something, mm. then uh, then it could be bad for him. But I, I don't know if he wants to do that. Yeah, right, because some of his base might like Trump, but not having him on right. might the be base, the They're going to like easier. Rogan more than Trump, I think. Maybe, maybe. I don't know what he wants to do. That might know. put a lot of people between a rock and a hard place. Those are two yeah. you know, pretty idolized guys by many guys. I think uh, it's funny to imagine the Trump camp, especially Trump. Like, please get me on the Joe Rogan show. Tell him I said please. I don't say please a lot. <laughs> and I can just see this going down. Well, that's probably what's going on, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I really want to go on the show. But Joe Rogan did a stand-up where he talked about the transition between the, the Obama presidency to the Trump presidency. And what he said was really interesting. Mm. Uh, I don't watch the Joe Rogan show. But after watching the stand-up, I felt like I understood, you know, his political mindset a bit more. And he basically said, you know, Obama was this really safe guy but didn't get a lot done, still didn't mm. fix the problems we have in this country. And he's like, you know, we're just in a relationship with like a really, you know, steady, normal person. Mm -hmm. And he says, this is a show for adults, but he says now, America's dating a hooker, like, mm -hmm. it's just, we're getting drunk all the time, we're, you know, we're having fun, and just the transition between presidents that we have. We're like, well, this thing didn't work, so let's try the exact opposite of that. So I don't think he has particularly, you know, high thoughts of Trump. He doesn't really think highly of Donald Trump um, or have high thoughts of him and have him on the podcast where I know that they talk about drugs and do drugs a lot and talk. But I think it's maybe a good move for him to just not have him on. Mm -hmm. I think he had RFK Jr. on. Mm -hmm. That's more of his flavor, right? Someone who's a bit libertarian leaning, someone who's critical of the establishment. Donald Trump, I think, is a, a bit you know, clearly not someone Joe Rogan sees himself aligned with politically, but also if he had him on and held his feet to the fire, his entire base and him could just really just be mad at Joe Rogan. He could say, don't listen to the podcast anymore. That's probably a business decision, right? Yeah. To not have him on and be mean. And he can do whatever he wants. I would, you know, if, if you've had on, um, when you're starting to have on candidates, I, I think it's only fair. Again, he can do, it's his show, so I'm not telling him how to run it. Right. If you're having candidates on, you know, to be fair, you, you should probably invite them all, or at least all the significant mm -hmm. ones. On we've, you know, we've at had, the same time. <laughs> to say we've had RFK <laughs> Jr. and Marianne, Marianne on the show, mm -hmm. uh, Marianne Williamson. If if 
President Biden wanted to be on the show, we would, of course, do it. Mm -hmm. If President Trump wanted to be on the show, we, we've had we've had Vivek Ramaswamy from the Republican category. Right. We're certainly interested in having on, you know, more of the Republican um, candidates, uh, you know, to be fair to everyone, to give to ask them questions and let the audience decide um, who they like. They probably already have some inclination of who they like, but they, you know, always want to learn more information. So I think that's, I mean, you know, that's that's our approach. But again, it's his show. He can do whatever he wants. Doesn't want to talk to Trump. Doesn't have to Trump. Trump mm -hmm. talk to Trump. Trump has, you know, every opportunity to speak and to be heard and you know to everything he does makes news and everyone covers it so it's not like it's not like Trump is being silenced because he hasn't gotten his invitation to the Joe Rogan show yeah I think it would be great to have just Joe Rogan host the presidential debates and sure. you know he could just do a podcast style in that same room be like all right what are your thoughts on aliens Talk as long Let's as you want just really ask we have all about the time in the world. aliens and drug legalization. Yeah. And yeah, imagine that's all. The, that's if all. we had that for the Democratic presidential primary, Kamala Harris would be like, you know, I was that little girl on that bus. And Rogan would be like, roll the clip, Jamie, and it's baby <laughs> Kamala on the bus. I think Joe Rogan would do a fine job. I, and then DeSantis could also answer for his time at Gitmo. To, yeah, to yeah, Joe we Rogan. learned something about that, finally. Um, all right, we will have more Rising right after this. reaction to Barbenheimer's opening weekend, of which I was a part, as I told you, Jessica. Dr. Peter Hotez wrote on X on Sunday, man, that's uncomfortable to read. Twitter, we mean Twitter, of course, but we now call it X. <laughs> well, so this is what Hotez said. Not to be a Debbie Downer, but anyone worried about a post-Barbie box office COVID bump? We'll probably never know, since no one seems to be keeping track of such things anymore. Keep up with your boosters. Find a pink N95 or KN95 if you can. Journalist Matt Taibbi wrote in reply, did you enjoy going back to uh, the movies this weekend? Well, don't forget to still be afraid of COVID when you come home, says a certain doctor. Yeah, I have a feeling uh, Dr. Peter Hotez lives in a bubble, doesn't take public transit every day where you encounter and sit next to far more humans than when you go to see a film in the movie theater, even if you see to a day, if you ride the subway to and from work, you encounter and sit next to more people. Or he himself does all the normal things and his, his tweets, his exes, whatever, about uh, COVID militancy are purely performative to you know, keep propelling the fears and anxieties of the deeply antisocial people who follow him and still cling to this Mm. COVID panic, zero COVID mindset. Look, you know, if you, and if you if you feel at risk and you want to wear a mask in public, that's your choice. It has nothing to do with me. I don't care. That's fine. But just but to, to worry people at this point. Again, we're it's year four of this pandemic. Yes. Um, after the widespread availability of vaccines, everybody, almost everybody, has had has some protection from a prior infection or mm -hmm. from vaccination or both or multiple of all of that. I mean, like, what are we, what are we still doing bringing this up and trying to, like, scare people or worry them? It, I, I don't know what, I don't know, I don't think it serves any public health purpose. I think it just serves the purpose of, of uh, continuing to cater to this ant deeply antisocial, panic-stricken social media audience for the, for the COVID zealots. Right. Yeah. I don't think, uh, you know, Dr. Peter here thought about the audience of the tweet. Right. And I don't think he felt that he had to. I think his perspective 
is probably just he doesn't go out in public. The only time he encounters the general populace and has to sit in such close proximity to them is in the movie. I mean, there are people, I'm not going to name names, but there are people known to me who posture online as as mm. masked up, I'll never go out in public again, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And I see them out about on the town. Just saying, it's a, it's a real phenomenon. Mm. You know the Influencers in the Wild accounts where they take paparazzi-like yeah. photos of influencers doing silly things? No, really, it's exactly you know, like that. mask people. Yeah. Publicly, some of, no some of these some of these mask shamers, these like yeah. you know, if you tweet a photo of yourself on a, on a plane or something, right? And they'll, they'll be like, "Where's your mask?" Mm -hmm. Again, I, many fewer people do this now yeah. than we're doing this two years ago. Thank God, because it is over, people. We got to move on with our lives. Um, I think it's great news that Barbenheimer had uh, like the strongest yeah. box office weekend since like Endgame or something years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a that's a good sign. I you know I want there to be a healthy mm -hmm. film industry. Um, it, you know it's it's good. Nature is healing and so on and so forth. We don't need to disdain that or panic about it or worry about it. But um, you know, and and Peter Hotez, by the way, has a long history. I think we've called attention to it on the show of being on all sides of the COVID issues. He was one of those people, you know, initially urging caution about the vaccine, the Trump vaccine. How do we know it's going to be safe? <laughs> that kind of thing. Then when when you know vaccination became became the Democratic Party's entire personality. You know, he switched to, no, you have, you just have to do it. You have to trust it, trust mm. the science, et cetera, um, yeah. and so on and so forth. In, in case anyone watching doesn't know who this individual is, he most recently got headlines again for refusing to do a debate with RFK Jr. Mm -hmm. that would be facilitated mm -hmm. by Joe Rogan, which touched off this whole news cycle of, no, you shouldn't, from the mainstream, be like, no, you should never, there'd be no reason ever to debate some crazy conspiracy theorist like RFK Jr. Mm, yes. I don't know. This, I still want to harp on Dr. Peter for his tone deafness of this tweet. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, the people that interact with this tweet, that appreciate this sentiment, they also probably are the type of person who spends most of their time when they're not working at home. They mm -hmm. don't take public transit. Mm -hmm. They don't sit in a pew at church on Sunday, which they would realize it's a bunch of people in a crowd sitting well, they close definitely to each other. They're definitely not going to church. No. <laughs> for, you know, for a fact, they're these not. Are, in these are secular, worried people. Right, right, yes. And they have no God I, to turn to. I wouldn't to. be surprised. Yes, no God to turn to. Just, just X now. Just X. Um, <laughs> for validation and support. But I think those people, that this is the first time they go out in public, uh, they're not at a particularly high COVID risk because it sounds like they don't hang out around other people either. So this mm -hmm. new audience of folks coming out with the plebs is worried that we're all going to give you COVID when most people have to go out and be in crowds to do their jobs, their day-to-day -day life. The most of them had you all the, all the way along. They're in warehouses. Even at the height of the pandemic. Driving trucks, having to go in truck stops all of the time. People are working, you know, in retail stores where they encounter sure. all of the public, the customers, and their other employees. Most people have to interact with people as a part of their job. They don't have the luxury of living in a bubble. I, I, I just can't appreciate these takes about COVID that ignore what life is like for everyday people. We had this happen when we spoke about Keep putting kids in schools during COVID. Emily Oster, who was actually my advisor in graduate school, I know her quite well. She's not someone 
who wants people to put their children at risk because she's just like, some of you will die and that's a risk we're willing to take. She used data to assess the risk and said, I just want to make the data on where cases are publicly mm -hmm. available so parents can make better decisions. And she was painted by a lot of liberals as this terrible actor during COVID. Think about the average working class family. Do they have the technological resources to have their kids go to school at home? Do they have stable Wi-Fi? Do they have extra laptop computers for their children. I mean, it wasn't a reasonable thing to say, let's have all of the kids stay at home until this pandemic is resolved. We needed to get more creative with our public policy. And so a lot of this COVID you know, reaction, this holier than now, we have to take every precaution possible, doesn't consider the realities of the most vulnerable people in our country, the working class. And so I, I really still have such a distaste for takes like this. Mm. Well, Dr. Peter Hotez was recently interviewed uh, on News Nation by our colleague Leland Vittert, who asked him about the lab leak origins theory, which obviously has gained some credibility, but not in Peter Hotez's mind. Let's watch. It's important that you look closely at the sources of information. So the U.S. intelligence uh, report clearly overwhelmingly supports the natural origins of well, COVID-19, okay, okay. like SARS and MERS. The National Intelligence Council, national natural exposure, uh, the FBI and the Department of Energy, laboratory-associated incident was the most likely cause, CIA unable to determine um, the precise origin. Again, I, I appreciate the idea of science. No, but the summary, but then the summary document from U.S. intelligence clearly supports natural origins. You had two minority opinions um, that um, uh, really but, but doctor, are not doctor, well supported. What is everybody and, and so no evidence. Like two minority to, yeah. opinions. It's the FBI <laughs> and the Energy Department. The Energy Department is responsible for more lab safety than any other department in, in, in the U.S. Um, uh, actually, after seeing the Oppenheimer movie, I know more about how the, the atomic scientist overseers uh, over, were part of a bunch of different commissions, and then eventually the Energy Department is, is created in order to bring them into that fold. Uh, so it is their conclusion, the Energy Department and the FBI, that a lab leak is more likely than natural origin. And he just he just writes those off as minority opinions. This isn't like a court ruled in and the FBI and the Energy Department were like two of the justices or something and their like that's not at all what happened. Um, I'd like to imagine that Peter also sleeps in his white coat and does yeah. all of his activities in his white coat and yeah. his bow tie. I don't know why he had to wear that to do an interview. I think that uh, a lot of doctors, you know, they should be allowed to speak out on their opinions on the matter, but uh, speaking out to dismiss the opinions of all others is not a, a particularly good use of your expertise mm -hmm. or your platform. And I think that if even if you are a doctor and you treat patients who have COVID, that's very different from being an epidemiologist or studying the effects of the virus or how it moves as a whole. It's not the same thing. You have an expertise to talk about your experience with COVID and your understanding of viruses. But I think there are a lot of COVID-specific researchers that were ignored by doctors who had, you know, the validity, you are a doctor, you, you are a medical doctor. But you might not exactly know what you're talking about when it comes to this particular thing. Yeah. Or maybe you're culpable. Maybe you're an advocate of yeah. research that got us into this mess. I mean, that's what we're finding out about all these proximal origins authors who you know, privately were expressing profound misgivings, deep concerns, couldn't sleep at night mm -hmm. out, of, out of their fear that grant proposals that they looked at, you know, funding that they were involved in, could have had something to do with the origins of COVID. But, but 
were uh, were relieved in the in their view that we'll never know the truth, and so then put out that paper explicitly ruling out a, a lab origin. So um, I, I'm I'm glad that um, I, you know that trust the science. We can we trust but verify, and uh, mm -hmm. the American people are are doing that, and it is long overdue. We'll have more rising right after this. UFO hearing taking place tomorrow, more lawmakers are demanding answers on what the government really knows about UFOs. Author and journalist Ross Coldhart, who interviewed one of these witnesses to testify this week, David Grush, well, he spoke with our producers this morning and had this to say on why the hearings might be different this time. Let's watch. There hasn't been a hearing into the phenomenon of UAPs pretty much for your and my entire lifetimes. I mean, I think the last hearing was 55 years ago and it didn't go anywhere because the right people weren't called. This time, you've got a very senior former intelligence officer who worked at the highest levels at the National Geospatial Agency and the National Reconnaissance Organization. And he wants to tell all. And he has claimed to me in interview that uh, he's aware of a non-human intelligence on this planet and that he learned about that during the work that he was doing as an investigator for the um, UAP task force. And so, yes, he's told part of his story before, but I think it's very important that this is being done before the Congress, under oath, before the scrutiny of the world. I mean, the interest in this hearing is enormous. My phone, my emails, messages haven't stopped. There is interest in this subject like there has never been before, because Mr. Grush, I think, is prepared to testify about things that are highly controversial. He's alleged to me that people were murdered in order to protect this secret. At least that's the suspicion that he's developed from doing his investigations. He's told me that he's aware of people being hurt by the non-human intelligence that we're aware of. These are incredible allegations. And this is the first time ever in the Congress that somebody who claims to have such knowledge based on speaking with direct witnesses it's the first time that somebody like this has come forward to give this kind of evidence. That's why it's unique. It's an opportunity for the first time for the Congress to hear the evidence gathered by a Pentagon investigator who wants to tell all about what he says is a non-human intelligence on this planet. I know that sounds insane. I know that sounds ridiculous, but he's prepared to testify under oath. He's already testified to the Congress, and he's also given his evidence to the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community. And indeed, the Inspector General referred the matter to Congress because he found the allegations made by Mr. Grush to be credible and urgent. So that's why it matters. It's an opportunity for the Congress to do what the Congress does so well. When, when there are moments weaknesses in the transparency and accountability procedures in your great country. As a young lawyer, I learned about what your country does so well, and it holds power to account. And here you have an opportunity for the Congress to test this man's allegations. And I think that's extraordinarily important. 
because under the gaze of the world, he's going to have the opportunity to put at least some of his evidence that he's allowed to state in public hearings before the committee. And I'm told that he's quite prepared in the right circumstances where he's allowed to before a secure compartmented information facility, he's able to testify in more broad terms about the other things that he does know, but which are protected by national security constraints. So that's why it really matters. It's an opportunity for Congress to do its job, hold power to account, and test the allegations made by a former very senior intelligence officer who says he knows about a non-human intelligence. He says he knows about a crash retrieval program of non-human technology. And he knows about a secret reverse engineering program that he claims has been illegally and improperly withheld from the knowledge of the Congress. That's why it matters. Incredible. Uh, I was struck by many things uh, he said there, including uh, most notably that people have been hurt, injured by a non-human intelligence, um, the drivers of the crafts that David Grush has alleged were recovered. Um, I think it's important to understand the historical nature of the, the hearings that are going to be held to actually have people who claim deep personal knowledge of these kinds of, of, of crafts or species or whatever it is that was encountered um, will, be, will be vital to hear from. Right. I remember when I first heard that they were allocating resources to having hearings on UFOs and UAPs and they were developing this committee in Congress. I was like, don't we have enough problems at home here on Earth that mm -hmm. Congress is not addressing? Like, really, we're going to put resources towards this? But the prospect that, you know, potentially non-human pilots on these spacecraft have made contact with Earth or we've had a dozen or more crashes like the whistleblower has said that makes this a, a matter of importance. And I think it's good we have people like Tim Burchett taking it very seriously. I like that uh, it's been pointed out that we haven't had a hearing like this in 55 mm -hmm. years. And even that hearing, they didn't call in folks to testify who had you know relevant knowledge to really expose things. So yeah, this is historic. And I think I'm excited to hear what they say in their testimony in Congress that they haven't said in their reporting yet. Yes, yes, because we have heard from these individuals, just not in the congressional testimony mm -hmm. framing. And I agree with you that, um, yeah, well, we, so we can do multiple things at one time, right? There's mm -hmm. 500 people in Congress. Um, they can yeah. focus on different things. We're having hearings on all sorts of government accountability matters related mm -hmm. to the weaponization of the federal government, speech issues, civil liberty issues, funding priorities, the secrecy, the accountability of law enforcement, of national security officials. And this, this is part of that. This is mm -hmm. part of the distrust, the understandable distrust the American people have for the expert class of government scientists and advisors, the permanent federal bureaucracy that totally dropped the ball on our foreign policy, that, that not only screwed up COVID, but probably lied about its origins and downplayed their own role in it. So forgive us if we're not so trusting anymore when they just say there's nothing to this. So yes, we need to hear from the witnesses. And, and I, I, I want to see... Act, Eventually, we got to get to a place where we're not just hearing what these people have to say, their allegations, but actually we're, we're you know, seeing something 
like the technology itself, the recovered objects or the recovered whatever it is that backs this up. Where are these things? What agency is keeping them? Who, you know, who's the security guard stationed mm -hmm. at the warehouse where our government is keeping these things? Let's open it up. Let's let, you know, the people see whatever evidence we have. There's, it's, it's not justifiable to keep this secret. Yeah, I'm very curious as to what uh, you know, David Grush will say, because yeah. we spoke with uh, David Grush and we've been reporting on David Grush a lot. Michael Schellenberger then followed up and interviewed folks in the intelligence mm -hmm. and military community to confirm a lot of what Grush's you know, claims were, uh, what he decided to speak out on. And I think when you get folks under oath, like when we interviewed Schellenberger, mm -hmm. uh, we asked, you know, were there pilots on these spacecraft? And he didn't originally write that in his reporting, but he was like, I did mm -hmm. get some confirmation from folks in the military and intelligence community that that was the case. So that's very interesting information coming from them. Here's some more of uh, what Colt Hart had to say when we spoke with him this morning. Yeah. Um I, I don't know the truth of all of Mr. Grush's allegations. I can vouch for him as a person of high reputation. Uh, I think uh, almost everybody I've spoken to, in fact, everybody I've spoken to from within his area of intelligence and defense has spoken extremely highly of him. Uh, there's nobody, frankly, even the Defense Department hasn't really laid a glove on Mr. Grush's allegations. They've made a very weak assertion that Aro, the Pentagon's very small, very under-resourced until very recently, UFO investigation office, has found to date no credible evidence of ETs engaging with this planet. But that's not an answer for the entire Defence Department, nor is it an answer for the intelligence community, or where I suspect if there is an answer, it's being really held. I think the answer to a lot of this lies in private aerospace. And I suspect it's true that the government many years ago divested itself of this technology and handed it over to private aerospace. And this is why, to a large degree, it's lost. It's a bit like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not lost in a warehouse somewhere in the back of Manhattan. It's basically lost in the morass that is the black world. And the people who instigated the divestment of this technology have largely passed on or gone into a retirement home. And the people who are in possession of the secrets now inside the Pentagon, I actually don't think they're bad people. I think they're wrestling with a decision and they don't know what to do with it. I think the White House is essentially rudderless at the moment on this issue. They haven't shown proper leadership. And I think the interesting thing is Chuck Schumer's legislation. It's actually the first sign that the White House must have been consulted, must have made a decision that, yes, we've got to be seen to be taking a decision on this. And that's why they've brought in what I think is probably the most extraordinary legislation on the books anywhere in the world. You have legislation now that is proposed before your Congress that is talking about non-humans, non-human technology. There is a serious effort inside the Congress to get to the truth of allegations made by Mr. Grush and other people that there is a secret reverse engineering program going on inside somewhere in America involving retrieved non-human technology. It really doesn't get more mind-blowing than that. And it's fascinating to me as a journalist because we're at a stage where 
with the exception of good organisations like you and News Nation, there's been very little media coverage of this issue in the legacy media. They've dropped the ball. And that's largely because a lot of the legacy media is driven by national security correspondents who report on the Pentagon and the intelligence community. And they're largely worried about how does one say this politely, defecating in their own nest. They don't want to upset the sources that feed them. And and this is the issue. There is a genuine reluctance and caution in legacy media that can no longer be explained by the normal ridicule and derision that's been attached to the subject. Because whilst the media is not taking this subject seriously, I can assure you, Congress is. It's got its teeth into UAPs, and it ain't letting go. We will continue following this subject, and we'll have more rising right after this. Russell, a 25-year-old Alabama nursing student who told police she was kidnapped, admitted this week that she was not abducted, CBS reports. A search for Russell began on July 13th after she called 911 and said she saw a toddler on the side of the highway. She allegedly returned home on July 15th and told police she was abducted. But then Russell's attorney, Emory Anthony, emailed Hoover Police Chief Nish Durzis, a statement which Durzis shared with the press conference yesterday. I received an email stating that a statement was being provided by him on her behalf. Mr. Anthony asked that I read the statement in its entirety, which I will do now. My client has given me permission to make the following statement on her behalf. There was no kidnapping on Thursday, July 9th, 13th, 2023. My client did not see a baby on the side of the road. My client did not leave the Hoover area when she was identified as a missing person. My client did not have any help in this incident, but this was a single act done by herself. My client was not with anyone or any hotel with anyone from the time she was missing. My client apologizes for her actions to this community, the volunteers who were searching for her, to the Hoover Police Department and other agencies as well, as to her friends and family. We ask for your prayers for Carly as she addresses her issues and attempts to move forward, understanding that she made a mistake in this matter. Carly, again, ask for your forgiveness and prayers. The woman who was the driving force behind the search, Angela Harris, whose own daughter was abducted and murdered four years ago, said she felt like she had to take action when she heard about Russell's disappearance. That's according to Inside Edition. I did not want our family to have to go through the pain of what we're going through so many other families are going through. Police say there's no evidence that the toddler Russell claimed to see ever existed. Now, according to police, some of the timeline they built of the days before Russell's disappearance included, quote, very strange online searches. On July 11th, Russell reportedly searched, do you have to pay for Amber Alert? And on the day of her disappearance, she allegedly searched online for the Birmingham bus station and information on bus tickets. She also searched online for the movie Taken, which is about a woman who was and the search to find her, according to the police. So, you know, this was a, a story that got a lot of social media attention. Um, yeah. I, I think some people's skepticism fired 
pretty quickly, very mm -hmm. correctly, because this was a hoax and clearly made up by this woman. We don't, I think, really know for what motivation. I, I don't know what her family situation is. I'm not quite, she's a nursing student, so she's not, she's an adult and can right. do her own. It's, you know, some of these, when adolescents disappear, it's, they're running away from home. It's not they're kidnapped. It's they're running away from home. You're going mm -hmm. to meet a boyfriend or a girlfriend, right. doing something parents don't want. Um, I, I don't quite understand why that would be the motivation here. Maybe attention. Maybe there's something wrong with her. I don't know. But mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> very much not a kidnapping. Right. I was scrolling on TikTok and got a video come up on my feed that I think was the boyfriend, the boyfriend uh, of Carly Russell, mm -hmm. uh, Tamar Simmons. I'm not sure if it was him or if it was a, a male friend of hers, but it was, there was something weird about the video where- Was I, she in the background of it? <laughs> During her kidnapping? Yeah, I was like, oh, that's the girl from the photo. Um, no, it was just something was off. I don't know what it was, but usually when things like that come up on my feed, you know, the, the instinct is like, oh, let's repost this so more people see it. So mm -hmm. she gets found. I don't know if that means this person knew it was a hoax or not, because the boyfriend did say, you know, she tricked me as well. I didn't know that, you know, she was actually not missing. But something was off about it. It was like almost excitement instead of concern. Uh, so I don't know what's going on. It seems that searching for bus tickets, it's giving, I want to fake my disappearance and start a new life somewhere. Uh, yeah, Gone right? Situation. And now the police are deciding whether or not to press charges. They uh, are deciding, yeah, I, I mean, they... Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if what she did technically meets the definition of a false police report. I guess it, it probably does. She called nine. She called nine one one and said she saw something she absolutely didn't see. She, mm -hmm. It was willfully done. So probably they will press charges. I don't. You know. I don't know that she needs to like spend the rest of her life in jail or anything. But right. important uh, false reports to police they waste valuable public resources. They. Right. You know. You can. They could have. They could have arrested someone wrongly. They could have detained someone wrongly. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you should not. Don't sick the police on people. Don't 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 have any. Don't call the police un unless there's an actual crime you want them to investigate. So I, I think it would be appropriate for her to be in some amount of trouble for this. Also, just mm -hmm. kind of the fear that people have about kidnappings, especially underage kidnappings. But like it's people have this idea in their heads that, you know, if you leave a child alone outside for more than five seconds, a white van will appear and a stranger will abduct them mm -hmm. and like sex trafficking them or something. Um, kidnappings are like 99.99% of the time are done by someone the child knows, a family member. Usually it's a custody dispute between the parents. 99.99, like right? Yeah, it's real, yeah. real exact number there. No, oh. it's oh, it's stranger, <laughs> stranger abductions are some are a media fiction because it yes. happens on like what like Law and Order or you know t television, movies, mm. etc. It in real life, it almost never happens. Not to say right. it's literally never happened. It it's has happened before, but virtually, overwhelmingly, it's the a kid runs away, so they weren't kidnapped or a parent takes them in a custody dispute or something like that, or some other family member. Um, st the stranger coming and grabbing your loved one, it can happen, like lightning can strike the same spot four mm. times in a row or something, but it's so unbelievably rare. The people you have to look out for are those closest to you. Thank you, Robin. Yes, yes. It turns the... out this, uh, <laughs> this was a 49-hour search operation. A lot of volunteers, a lot of people on social media, officers, canine teams, helicopter support, and Eesh. they don't know the exact cost, but there's some talk, I mean, this is the Daily Mail, so, but they said, you know, it remains uncertain if Russell will be required to pay the expenses 
Do you remember when there was that, you know, billionaire submarine that went under the water? They didn't abide by safety regulations. It was kind of of their own accord to go down into the ocean. Mm -hmm. The Navy knew that it had imploded and everybody was still looking for it. Mm -hmm. Was there talk about anyone repaying the expenses for that? Well, they're dead. They died. I mean, I'm sure that the families are on the, the company hook for has it. some money, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, in that case, yeah, I, I, it was obviously going to be. I would make be, the submarine comp ocean gate pay. Well, maybe th that might be fair. Um, the idea of recovering them alive in that case was always so far fetched to me from the yeah. get go. Um, but maybe they want, you know, you want to recover the, maybe the company wants to, itself wants to recover the vessel um, to, you know, in order to discover what went wrong. And then obviously mm -hmm. the remains, uh, which I think they found some of them, which that was pretty remarkable to me. Yeah. In order to, um, to you know, have the, the families have something to, to bury, help them grieve. Uh, yeah, it might be totally appropriate for the company to, uh, to, to pay the costs of that search. So yeah. I hear you. Uh, yeah, in this I, I don't know if she, she there's no way she can pay the whole cost of right she's a nursing student. Right. I a nursing student. I don't think she's going to be able to pay the whole cost of that, but right. maybe some kind of fine, maybe community service, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, writing an essay about what she's learned. Yeah. Um something that will discourage, you know, people from making false police reports because it is a serious issue. Yeah, and the lawyer has apologized. Uh Emery, let's put that up. This is the apology uh, you know, yeah. posted by Phil Lewis on Twitter. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's clear that a lot of people want Carly Russell to say something herself. A lot of people took a lot of their free time and they were, you know, posting on TikTok, helping in the this search. Was one of those, and they're like, we're going to find uh, yeah. what was the woman who went missing who, who was killed by her boyfriend um, in the. Gabby oh, Petito. Gabby Petito, yeah. Yep. Yeah, this, I've seen TikTok posts like, I texted my grandma, I was calling everybody, I was looking for you, girl. Yeah. I just want to know why you did this. Yeah. I just want an explanation to satisfy the curiosity as compensation for my time lost looking for you when you were not missing. She should have said that um, she got beaten up by Trump supporters, and this is mm -hmm. MAGA country, and then the whole mainstream media would have believed her for... Days and days and weeks and weeks. Keep lying, Robbie says, <laughs> in a new direction. <laughs> More rising right after this. Basketball legend LeBron James' 18-year-old son is currently hospitalized and recovering from cardiac arrest after collapsing during a University of Southern California team workout on Monday. Bronny James is currently out of the ICU and in stable condition, according to his family. Now, ex-CEO Elon Musk replied to a tweet about the incident and did not hold back in speculating about the cause of James' heart attack. Quote, we cannot ascribe everything to the vaccine, but by the same token, we cannot ascribe nothing. Myocarditis is a known side effect. The only question is whether it is rare or common. Not everyone is on board with the theorizing, however. Conservative journalist Curtis Huck tweeted, I'm just asking questions. People need to shut it down right now. A teenager with their entire life ahead of him is battling for his life. Not the time for any of that. Stop being conspiracy theorists for the sake of it. Meanwhile, here's what CNN's Sanjay Gupta had to say about Bronny's incident. Let's watch. Well, so he's, he's 18 years old. Sounds like he had this sudden cardiac arrest. There was a very fast, it sounds like, resuscitation. 
taken to the hospital. But as you point out, given the fact that he was in the intensive care unit but was then able to, to leave the intensive care unit and is on a general care floor, that, that is obviously uh, the, the most important sort of headline there. Obviously, the, the cardiac arrest, what exactly triggered that, what caused that, that's what the doctors are going to be sort of investigating over the next several days. Uh, this is rare. Um, we know that a few thousand people who are, who are uh, young athletes do suffer sudden, sudden cardiac arrests every year. There's all sorts of different reasons that can happen, electrical abnormalities of the heart. Um, we know, for example, with the Marhamlin, it was related to something known as cordius commotio, which is a blow to the chest wall. We don't know what happened specifically with, with Bronny James. Yeah, DeMar Hamlin was another um, uh, athlete injury mm -hmm. that people were speculating, some online, that it might have had something to do with vaccination. Um, although, there were, you know, the video of him being hit, it, it looks like, it looked to me like that would how it seemed if you watch the video you could quite easily imagine how that could have caused a kind of um heart issue here obviously we don't know and so i i totally agree that there should not be baseless speculation about mm -hmm. what caused this um yeah i i believe there is some evidence there are some studies that have expressed concern about some level of COVID vaccination in teenage males mm -hmm. possibly being associated with a slight increase in the risk of myocarditis. We don't know that that has anything to do with this case. We don't, obviously, we don't even know if this individual was vaccinated in the first place. And, and also, there have been studies and suggestions that COVID itself <laughs> can right. be associated with an increased risk of, of a heart condition. So yeah. everybody needs to just kind of like chill out, not just go looking for information that confirms all their priors and the and and, and the, the you know the died suddenly crowd online, the people who want to attribute every everything yeah. to the COVID vaccine. Um, honestly, they sound a little bit like the before there was a category of people who were attributing all deaths to COVID, mm -hmm. you know, even if you, you might have happened to have COVID and been in like a motorcycle crash and they're like, oh, another COVID victim. Like there, there, it was true that some of the fatality numbers were being exaggerated or mis, you know, misreported in the media. But um, that's like also all the wild speculation about vaccine injuries is, is on the same level. Yeah, sudden deaths happen. They happen in sports. Uh, mm -hmm. Shaquille O'Neal's son, Sharif, in 2018, actually suffered a similar emergency with his heart and had to have heart surgery. This is especially a problem with athletes that are pushing themselves. Mm -hmm. I can imagine being the son of Shaquille O'Neal or LeBron James means you might push yourself a little harder even to mm -hmm. live up to your father's legacy. It happens. I have a friend who I played college lacrosse with. He was on the men's team and he was playing on a club team in graduate school a year after graduating from undergrad with us and ended up he ended up dying suddenly on the field oh my god this happens frequently in sports when you're pushing your body it's i think it's also important we get the the evidence right so they found in most cases that when you get the the vaccine you are less likely to have a heart attack myocarditis if you get covid you actually have a higher chance 
uh, of getting myocarditis than if you, you know, are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So this this idea that getting the vaccine makes you more likely to have a heart attack is is not true. It prevents COVID infection, and then COVID gives you a higher chance of having a heart attack. It is better to get the va- vaccine if you're worried about heart attacks. Is is basically basically what the statistics show. So the only exception to this was men under 40 with the Moderna vaccine. Right. And we're not so sure that you know this data would hold true over many years. Is it statistically significant enough for us to say that you should not get the Moderna vaccine because of this, this risk? So for men under 40, there were four extra cases of myocarditis associated with the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine, 14 extra cases with the first dose of Moderna for every one million men vaccinated. But the risk rose with the second dose for all three vaccines studied. It was the highest for Moderna's, which had an additional 97 myocarditis cases per 100 million. And then unvaccinated men with COVID-19, it was just six additional myocarditis cases per million. So we're still talking very small numbers here. Yes, we're talking Um, small numbers. I mean, the thing is, though, because getting the vaccine does not stop you from getting COVID, it's like it's almost in some sense you're going to face the risk Whatever risk COVID causes of mm. myocarditis is, I mean, it's a, I, I, I don't know what the numbers are. It's like 80, 90, I think upwards of 90% of people in the U.S. have had COVID by now. Yeah. So, like, that is a risk you're going to face anyway. Mm-hmm. It, so it's not so much the risk of COVID versus the risk of the vaccine because yes. the COVID risk is going to be borne anyway. So it's, is there an additional risk associated with the vaccine. And and you're right to put out that it's not at all all age categories. Um, in fact, Sanjay Gupta, who we just played a clip of, I've I've seen him say before that and like and I agree with this. If you know if you're a particularly a male, particularly teenager, an athlete, and you're concerned about this, yeah, maybe one dose was the right um, mm-hmm. number for you. Maybe none if you've already had COVID. Mm-hmm. But that and that's clearly something that each individual family person should work out, should consult doctor, their own doctors, etc. So the idea that we, you know, we would mandate this for this category, and I, you know, I have to point out, many colleges still in the U.S. are are taking this decision away from the individual, away from the family, in consultation with their doctors, but saying to be a student at this campus, you have to get vaccinated, even though you know getting vaccinated is no guarantee that you won't get uh, infected mm-hmm. anyway there's not going to shut down or make impossible kind of like outbreaks on college campuses um, this is virtually the only kind of vaccine mandate that endures in the US is ones for a a population that is not particularly at risk of a extremely negative COVID-related health outcome, mm-hmm. why you would require them of a vaccination on them doesn't make any scientific sense to me whatsoever. Right. We don't even know what kind of vaccine Ronnie James got or, right. if, he or vac- if he did It might all, be a yeah. requirement for him to I don't know if it's a requirement at USC. I know my own. Uh, I'm a graduate of the University of Michigan, and I know they're still planning to require the, right. um, the, uh, the, the bivalent booster, I believe, uh, this fall. Right. So I find that pretty indefensible. But, uh, you know, it sounds like that Bronnie James is out of the ICU, which is good. It is recovering, spending time with family. That's good. This is a young kid who pushes his body, plays sports pretty hard. You know, we had Sharif O'Neal, Shaquille O'Neal's son in 2018, before COVID, before the COVID vaccine, also requiring surgery to fix a similar abnormality after. You're you're right. You're absolutely right to point out that, you know, athletes work themselves, um, very, very, very hard. And yes, things like this, they're rare, Mm -hmm. but they do happen. And, you know, we not, and just because, just because you think you're picking up on more reports of this kind of thing does not mean it's getting 
more prevalent. Mm -hmm. It could you could be paying better attention to it. It could be going there could be more reporting on it. It could be going viral more if it's social media where you're seeing these yeah. injuries, accidents, even deaths. Um, that does that you have to look at the statistics to see if it's actually there's a, a kind of uptick, and then you'd have to see, well, is there an uptick because COVID is its, itself a health risk? Right. There's this confirmation bias you have, yeah. right? I started driving a Ford Bronco. Now when I go out driving, whenever I see a Ford Bronco, I notice it. I'm like, suddenly, there's so many Ford Broncos. Or do I just like the car and I notice when other people are also driving it, right? It's the confirmation bias yeah. there. I think it's also important to know that this wasn't the kind of rigorous medical testing that we usually have because they want us to get the vaccines out, right? We, we couldn't really do a randomized controlled trial in this sense. So they're assessing the general population. Is there a different kind of person, someone who's maybe more conscious of their health, who maybe has had health risks in the past, who seeks out getting vaccinate, vaccinated more than someone who doesn't? Is that why we're seeing the difference here? There's that self-selection bias that, you know, a randomized controlled trial would account for. There's a lot going on here. And I yeah. think uh, yeah, a time to spread your conspiracy theory when someone has a heart attack who yeah. is a young, famous athlete is just not it. Well, we obviously wish him a full recovery. Tomorrow on Rising, journalist Matt Taibbi will be joining the show to discuss the latest on the COVID origins debate. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Bye, y'all.